0: Luke twenty-four, thirty-six through forty-nine, Jesus appears to his disciples. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit, and he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've been looking
1: at um, the different ways that the gospel writers record Jesus' great commission. You're with us during uh, Lent. We looked at this wonderful passage in John 15. Jesus summarizes the whole Christian life. He said, abide in me and go and bear much fruit. And so we've been asking, well, what does it look like to go? And so each gospel has its own own, uh, recollection of how Jesus sent us into the world. And you see the same three themes each time it opens up with a visit to the disciples who are somewhat confused and doubting. Uh, And then there's a call to go into the world and share the gospel and then there is a promise of the presence of the spirit so just to back up for, for a minute um, where does that sit with you um, as far as, as we can tell uh, when, when Jesus was trying to talk to the leaders of the early church the leaders of our family about what they needed to be about in the world uh, One of the things that he said is that we needed to proclaim the kingdom of God, proclaim the gospel. There's different words. We've been talking about that. We've talked about how that's a big holistic thing. And part of it certainly has to do with spiritual conversations with people about their own faith journey. So just just kind of a check-in. When was the last time... You had a conversation with a friend about spiritual matters. Um, a, a friend who's not currently a, a follower of Christ. When, when's the last time that happened? Or. Not trying to shame you or beat you up, but I think it's, it's something to think about. You know, at All Souls, we talk a lot about deconstruction and reconstruction and I think that's part of our mission as a church. Sometimes our faith kind of falls apart and we try to put it back together again. I want to suggest to you that however you put it back together again, some aspect of talking to others about the spiritual life and encouraging them if they want to be encouraged to embrace the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ is is part of any kind of reconstructed faith. Uh, if you pull that out, I'm not sure you have Christianity anymore. No, there's a lot of ways to do it, a lot of ways we don't want to do it, but it's got to be part of the equation. So let's look at this tonight and, and think a little bit about what that might look like. Again, he comes to them, they're startled, frightened, they're troubled, and he talks to them about having peace. And I find that very comforting, again, that the the, the founders of our movement were troubled and doubting and wrestling. And I know sometimes we we feel like, you know, I don't want to, I don't really want to talk about my faith very much, because I've got these questions, and actually, I don't tell everybody about some of them, and. There's sometimes that I doubt the whole thing's even real. I don't tell people that, but sometimes I feel that way. and I better not talk about it, because the people that talk about it, they know. They're certain. Well, this suggests, I think, that at least some of the disciples weren't. That some of them had doubts, some of them were confused, and yet he gives this commission to all of them that even in the midst of your doubts and your confusion, I want you to go and share this hopeful, hopeful word with others. And I would submit to you that you actually might be better at sharing this hopeful word if you're honest with your doubts. I think people might be more receptive to the conversation if you were honest with your doubts and then there's this lovely scene about uh, they still disbelieve he says touch my hands and feet jesus wants to help us believe he understands how hard it is to believe and i think it's getting harder to believe faith is not easy jesus keeps going out of his way to give us evidence to give us reasons to believe and wasn't enough for them, so finally he says, Can I have a fish sandwich? Now, Luke uh, is a theologian. Why does Luke record little details like that? Couldn't he tell the story differently? Um, is it just that rising from the dead makes a man hungry? That could be part of it. Um, I think there's something more here. Jesus has a body, Jesus rose from the dead in a real a real body. He really did eat a fish sandwich. And that means that the resurrection for the first Christians was not just kind of like a, an idea or a, a metaphor or that he rose like in a spiritual sense as kind of a ghost. Uh, the early writers were really trying to say, no, that's not the what happened. I mean, this was a real resurrection with a real guy with real hungers, and he, he did eat a fish sandwich. I also think there's a little theology going on in here about the body. Because there was this idea in the first century that said that the spiritual life was better than the physical life, and that if you wanted to become holy, you would deny your body and just pursue the spiritual things. And uh, this kind of ascetical movement came into play very early in the early centuries of the church and I think kind of really messed up some of the early church's theology of the body. I think the reason Luke records this is because Jesus could have said, ah, my disciples, I have left the fallen body behind and now I feast on the desires of the spirit. I no longer need the lower passions of the flesh. I have now arrived at the epitome of the spirit. No, he says, I need a sandwich. And I think, that's a whole sermon, but I think that means that our bodies are good, that hunger is good, that desire is good, that sex is good, that fish is good. You know, I heard a crazy sermon a while ago where the guy was comparing John the Baptist he's running around the desert in these old chakas eating bugs and just yelling at people. And, and then Jesus comes along. And what's Jesus accused of? Too many dinners out with wine. Just drove people nuts. They couldn't see how a holy man could like to party like that. And this guy's sermon was saying he thinks that that Jesus was saying this is no longer the age of John the Baptist and his asceticism. He said Jesus was an Epicurean. (laughs) I'm not ready to go maybe that far. But the guy spends a lot of time drinking good wine and having fun in in the Gospels. And so I think part of this little clue here is the body's good. Yes, there's all sorts of ways we can mess that up, and it can become idolatry and addictive, and we got that. But... The body's good. Then he said to them, these are my words. And now he tells them the whole story of scripture, everything written about me, going back to the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, all of the scriptures. and He tells them the, the whole story of redemption, the whole drama of redemption. I've mentioned that later in August, or I think July, I'm going to try to do a little series on overcoming anxiety, because anxiety seems to come up so much for us, and so uh, I've been reading different uh, books on the New York Times bestseller list about anxiety, and uh, there are a lot of them. Uh, One I just finished was very interesting, it was by Matt Haig, it was called Notes on a Worried uh, Planet. Um, Hey, come on in, grab a seat, Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) <laughs> we're glad you're here and it's it's a brilliant reflection on um, uh, how many causes there are in our world that make us anxious and kind of frighten people but he he never once mentions God and it never occurs to him that being cut off somehow from God and the story of what God is doing in the world might actually have something to do with our anxiety. I'm reading another one called um, How How to Not Fall Apart by uh, a British woman uh, named Maggie Van Eyck. And uh, Again, just fall in love with her, just a dear, dear, dear uh, woman who's very honest about her pain and I'm only a couple chapters into it, but in this one, she's talking about a season in her life when she started off cutting herself, herself, and then when that didn't numb the pain enough, she went to burning herself with a cigarette, and she's, she's talking about how she got to that point and, 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 and why, and it's very, very painful. And throughout the book, she's giving things she's learned about managing anxiety along the way. But she never addresses story and what strikes me about matt's book and maggie's book is neither one of them are living in a story that makes any sense of life uh, there, there, there's no scholars call it a meta-narrative no big story no no sense of life going anywhere with a meaning and purpose no 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 beauty no end and so I'm having this odd feeling reading this book thinking, how, how could you not be depressed? How, how could you not be anxious if, if there's no story that makes sense of life? And I think the worst thing we can do is write in triumphally and uh, you know, tell them that we never are anxious and never depressed and everything works because we've got a better story. That's not been true for me. It's not true for many of you. But I do think we can humbly say that embracing this beautiful story of Scripture, a story of a creator God who loves us and longs for us and pursues us and sends his son to draw us back into relationship with him, a son who suffers and dies and then comes to be with us in the presence of the Spirit and comes into a create the family of God that we get to be a part of and make meaning within, that that bigger story is what helps me cope with anxiety so I wonder if one of the ways we might share the gospel with friends is, is just get to the point where we can talk about our stories and, and maybe spend some time asking so what is the story that you use to make sense of your life how, how, how do you get through life what's your, what's your story So Jesus starts with uh, telling the whole story of the gospel. Then, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's a little shorthand there of the summary of the gospel. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance, forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. Three words. But here's what I find really challenging. I don't think many of our neighbors have any kind of a framework to hear what those words might mean. Or or perhaps that they don't even care. Uh, in these wonderful books that I'm reading by Matt and Maggie, Never do they say, I woke up in the morning desperately in need of forgiveness for my sins. Where can I go to find forgiveness of my sins? Uh, I, I read them waking up very anxious, waking up perhaps loathing themselves for something that they did, waking up perhaps uh, tormented by uh uh, an inner mental struggle, waking up perhaps uh, not at peace. Uh, several of them describe panic attacks in just very painful ways. And they're, they're thinking about how do I get on the, the train without having a panic attack? How do I go to the supermarket without having a pan attack, panic attack? But they're not associating that with I'm out of relationship with the holy God and how do I restore that relationship and find peace? It's almost like the solution that the church has is not to the problem that our neighbors are wrestling with, at least on the surface. I find that to be a real, a real challenge. Um, so, so what do we do? Um, when I came to church two weeks ago. Uh, I think it was Dogwood Arts Festival. It was one of the great festivals that we have. And it was sunny, and people were laughing and dancing and singing. And it just was a beautiful day. And then there was this guy dressed in black with a big placard on that said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And he was walking through. And I just thought, ah that's how we look (laughs) is that the vision that we're casting stop having fun on this lovely day wear black be sad drag around with a dollar face is that the hope of the gospel I hope not I hope not so what do we do how do we talk about this well let's start with the word sin for just a moment um In the Greek, it means to miss the mark, the mark of God's holy law. But if you have no concept of a holy God, if you don't believe in God, or if your concept of God is some sort of maybe uh, interpersonal force that's active in the world, like in Star Wars, which is increasingly the way people think about God, if they think about him at all, then this whole idea of you've missed the mark of a holy God makes no sense at all. I mean, Yoda didn't talk about that your yoga teacher doesn't talk about that they don't talk about that in on being they don't they just don't talk about it so how do you talk about it i'm not sure it's something i i think we need to be thoughtful about as we try to have spiritual conversations uh i'm thinking one that it's a long process That these kind of conversations take years. And that maybe it begins with helping a person identify with where they are not flourishing as a human being. Where they are cut off from life. Where they are disconnected from a greater purpose. Now, that's not all sin is. I know that. There's a lot more to talk about. But I wonder if that's kind of a common ground that we could find. Instead of just starting with, you're at odds with the holy God, and we've got to deal with that, maybe we start with, something is wrong. The biblical language calls that something sin. Let's kind of tease that. And then how about forgiveness? Again, most of our neighbors do not, many of our neighbors at least, do not feel the need for forgiveness from a holy God for breaking his moral law. It's just not in their framework to even think about it that way. So how do we talk about it? I wonder if one way is to tell your own Journey, your own story about what it has been like for you to be disconnected from God, estranged from God, not aligned with God, what that was like for you, and how you came back into relationship with this loving person at the center of the world. I wonder if we could go at it that way. And then over time, work in all this lovely, powerful, mysterious doctrine and theology of of the cross and sin and atonement and redemption and all of what that means. But my, my sense is you just cannot start there now with most people. Because there is not that sense of I am guilty in the face of a holy God. I don't think most people in a secular culture start there. So I think we have to back it way, 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 way up. First to the idea that a loving God even exists. Then to the idea that somehow being out of sync with him could contribute to the demise of my own life and others, and then to how do we restore that relationship? And then the last word, repent. Repentance. means to realign, change the mind in a way that changes your behavior. And I, I think that ultimately is what we're asking people to do is to realign their lives with a better story. Now, it was interesting, as I read these different books on anxiety, one of the things that I observe is that in each case, the writer's terrified ego sits on the throne of their own life. And all the different things that the writers recommend to deal with anxiety, and some of them are very helpful things, are ultimately about how can I help this terrified ego at the center of my universe feel better about the fragile world that could fall apart at any minute. And there are good ideas in these books, but what I'd suggest to you is at the end, the project's doomed. Because the world will fall apart at any minute. (laughs) And if you are at the center, if your fragile ego is at the center of your world, there is no way to overcome anxiety. The only way is to decenter your ego and surrender to a greater love, a bigger story, a larger lord. We call that conversion. That does not mean we're no longer anxious and we don't have any troubles or anything like that, but it means we start to work them out in an entirely different framework, one in which our lives are given to someone else and something else and for someone else. And the energy is not simply around me. And I think, however we describe this, Conversion ultimately is moving from a narrative that is simply about me to a narrative about God and others. That's the soul shift. That's what repentance means. Jesus says, You're witnesses of these things. You've seen this, guys. And I think this is so true. Talk about what you've seen. I'll hold off on the book for a while. <laughs> Have you read C.S. Lewis? There's a place for that. I think a better step is: Can I just tell you how my faith has helped me with my depression? Can I just tell you? I mean, what what a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story she shared earlier tonight. She essentially found joy and peace by giving her life to another and others. That's the gospel. And lastly, he says, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Again, we need Pentecost. We need the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, I, I don't know what it really looks like to take that seriously. I mean, I believe it. I know you believe it. I'm just so aware lately of the lack of spiritual power in my words. I don't know if it's because I'm tired But I I guess I am just longing for this sense of the power and presence of God. In a spiritual conversation, I am so tired of Twitter fights and Facebook blogs and YouTube posts and whatever I'm throwing into the fire as well. I just wanna see God move. And honestly, I'm almost at a point where I wanna shut up until I see the Spirit of God move. But you pay me to be here every week, so I've gotta keep saying things. And I'm only half joking. I've been praying for the Spirit of God to touch us and move on us. And I'll, I'll be as honest as I should be and maybe a little more. Lately, I've been feeling the power and presence of God on my porch with God. And I've been feeling the power and presence of God with a friend at Panera or in my office. I haven't been feeling the power and presence of God in here very much. And I, Matt, and I pray about this. We talk about this. I don't. I don't. I, I'm not criticizing you or me or him or the sound system. Or you know, I don't. It, that's not the point in this. But if we are going to witness to Christ in this age, it can only be by the presence of God. You know, you can pre- you've can. you seen this if you've been around for a while. You can have the absolute worst sermon in the world with no, no rhetorical sophistication. And if the spirit is all over it, God's oh, people are moved and touched and changed. You can have the best sermon in the world. But if there is no power there, it's just empty rhetoric. And one of the reasons I'm going away this week and I'm not going to develop the lectures like I was going to do is I just feel like God's saying, shut up for a while and sit with me in the woods. So that's what I'm going to do. If I say any (laughs) more, I'll get even more in trouble. So we'll stop at this. Lord... um, Please, please, please give us the power of your Holy Spirit to talk about spiritual things. And not just for me, Lord. For every mom and dad who talks about it with their kids, for every single roommate, for every student, every retired person. Lord, we all need this. Right now, Lord, when I I think about going into all the nations and proclaiming the gospel by the power of the Spirit, I just have this picture in my mind of a stove where the dimmer light is just barely even on. The flame is just, it's there, but it's almost like the pilot only. Lord, as we approach Pentecost, would you turn up the flame? So that whatever conversation we're having would, would have more of your power soaking it. God, I confess, I haven't felt it in quite a while in my preaching. And I know feelings are deceptive. But as we draw near to Pentecost, God, I'm, I'm tired. And sometimes I feel like I'm just talking. Please, Holy Spirit, come. Amen.